In the Lord's Supper, we reflect on the gospel, on the self-giving of the Son, where he gives up his life for the benefit of sinners, undeserving sinners, like you and me. And we recognize that that was all a gift, an act of grace. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten Son. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. God is a giving God, a self-giving God, a sacrificing God. And we said that when we truly reflect on those things, it propels us to uh, act that way towards others. God's grace not only flows into us, but when we truly come to understand the gospel, if the gospel has truly landed on us, it will also flow through us and out of us. Someone once said, we won't be containers that just collect God's grace. We'll instead be conduits, conduits of God's grace. And of course, all the other uh, aspects, the riches of salvation, forgiveness, will be conduits of forgiveness and mercy and uh, um, love, all those things will not just stay there. They'll, they'll, they'll overflow and they'll bubble out. When God so richly and abundantly gives to us, we will naturally, and I would say supernaturally, want to be givers as well. God's giving character will be built into the very fabric and core of our being. God's giving to us now enables us and empowers us to now give and to spend ourselves for the cause of the gospel. And so when we truly come to understand the extent to which God has given to us, we'll turn around and exude that same kind of benevolence, that same kind of kindness to others, especially towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the last time we talked about that, as I said, in terms of service, Jesus said that that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so giving and service were connected. In his giving, Jesus became a servant. And he demonstrated that at one point in the upper room by washing his disciples' feet. But that was more than just a demonstration. He said that that was an example for his disciples that they should do likewise, that they should do that same kind of thing to other followers of Jesus. And so giving demonstrates itself in acts of service. As Christians, we're called to serve each other in ways that are sacrificial and ways that are costly. Why? Because we are beneficiaries of Christ's sacrificial and costly service toward us. One leads to the other, do you see? It's, it's freely we have received, freely we must give. And so service is one of the ways in which we spend ourselves. And we saw last time that that's all over the New Testament. God gives, we serve, God gets the glory. It's that cycle of giving. But another way in which we can give is through our finances. One of the things that you see in the Bible as we talk about the gospel, God giving his son for our sins, is that it is often expressed in economic kinds of terms. Terms that come from the world of finance. I've even talked this morning about in terms of spending ourselves for each other. But the Bible talks about our salvation in those kinds of ways. It, it pictures our spiritual condition in terms of poverty. At one time we were poor, and then these riches that are, 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 are kindly given to us 
in salvation. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to think of ourselves as lacking any spiritual riches, as, no having, as having no spiritual resources to gain entrance into the kingdom before we can truly enter that kingdom. We have to think of ourselves as spiritually poor. And Paul uses that same language extensively. Ephesians 1 verse 7 talks about the riches of God's grace which he lavished upon us. The riches of his grace. And then in the next chapter, in Ephesians 2, after um, painting a, a really hopeless picture of, uh, of the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God being rich in mercy. And then the, it just sort of keeps on going. In verse 7, he says that he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6 says, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us, all the, the riches that come with the, Holy, with the gift of the Holy Spirit and his powers of regeneration. And even that Mark 10 passage talked about Christ's service as a ransom payment. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, Romans has that same kind of payment language. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We keep on going on and on. Just thought of another one as I was doing this, that in Colossians 2, it talks about the fact that through the cross, God has canceled the debt of our sins. My point is that seeing that the Bible talks about the salvation that we've been freely given in these economic, financial kind of terms, it shouldn't be surprising then that God now asks us to give freely of our financial blessings. Giving away our possessions and finances is just another result, another byproduct of the gospel. And so we need, we need to get this down in under in order to understand why we are called to give. We're, just, we're, we're not just called to give in a, out of a vacuum. It's not just something God thought of later on, that you know, once I get the church, oh, man, how are, we, how are they going to pay for the church? We'll just tell them to give. No, that wasn't an afterthought. That's just part and parcel of the whole flow of the Bible. And so we need to understand that. And when we understand what God has given to us, it'll help us then understand that the, the Christian virtue of the Christian call, maybe, to give. These are fundamental and foundational truths of Christian life. God has freely given, we have freely received, and now we are unleashed to freely give of ourselves and to spend ourselves and to contribute to the work of the gospel through the church. And I want to be careful to point out that the order is important. We give not in order to earn God's favor. We give because God has already favored us with his grace. We don't give in order to earn favor. We give because of what God has already done. If we turn it around, it's just salvation by works, and that is 
a damning doctrine. We serve because we have been saved by grace. We give because we have been saved by grace. And so with all that said, my aim this morning is just to give you some general principles on giving, principles that come from the Bible. Like I said before, this is one of those biblical fundamentals, and so we find that general principle all over the place in the Bible. It's sort of a theme that you see from beginning to end. It's the consistent teaching of the Bible. It's the consistent expectation of the people of God. God calls his people to contribute toward his work. It was true for his chosen people back in the Old Testament, national Israel. It's true for his people in the New Testament, spiritual Israel, the church. So for instance, in the book of Exodus, way back in the second book of the Bible, I'm just picking out some places here. You can go right back to Genesis where talks about Abraham giving already um, and, and throughout the patriarchs, patriarchal history. But in the book of Exodus, God specifically calls for contributions in the construction of the tabernacle. And so in Exodus 25, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And so that was the tabernacle, the sort of Temporary, or temporary moving presence of God that went with them in the wilderness. Um, but he says the same thing when they start gathering material to build the temple, the more permanent structure. King David then calls for a contribution and, and, the, and the people respond. So I want you to turn just for a minute. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians, but I want you to turn just to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. If you're looking for it, it comes right before Second Chronicles. First Chronicles 29 verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now, I love that. There's the same principles, or there's some principles we see in giving right there that we'll see in the New Testament passage that we're going to look at right away. But we see the pattern here in First Chronicles uh, in David's prayer a, uh, a few verses later, that pattern that I was talking about, that, that God gives, we give, and then God gets the glory. So look at verse uh, 10 where it keeps on going. It says, Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Skip down to verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. See that? God has given. Now we give. Skip down to verse 16. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have uh, provided for, for, your bil- for building you a house for your body or for your holy name, sorry, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. 
That's just a great scene. David knows full well that everything comes from God, and so it gives him and, and the people great joy to be able to offer these blessings to the work of God. And then they glorify him and praise him and thank him. They, they understand God's grace and God's bounty. And now they give freely as an overflow of a grateful heart. There are all kinds of principles in there to guide our giving, and, and they're perfectly consistent with what we see in the New Testament. And so I just want to go to one place this morning in the middle of Paul's second inspired letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. That comes right after 1 Corinthians. And so I'm just going to read from a few sections, but listen um, for the sort of familiar pattern that we already saw in 1 Chronicles 29. So 2 Corinthians 8, I'm going to jump around a little bit, so I'll, I'll let you know when I'm skipping some verses and going ahead some other ones. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Skip down to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then over to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. A great passage, just filled with the grace of God, the giving of God, which led to their giving, which led to glory and praise towards God. So I just want to put forward a few principles on giving from these verses. Um, by the way, I, on the back of your sermon notes today, I put a number of resources. I, it's just one message isn't enough to go into everything here, so I, I just put some resources in there that I found helpful and that 
Uh, if you want to look into this a little bit further, you might find helpful as well. First, a little background of what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, one of Paul's goals as he visited Christians in different places was to collect money to help actually with the church back in Jerusalem, that, that first church. Jerusalem is where things all got started. It's where people were first added to the church, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 1 to 6. But just a little later on, that church started suffering from poverty and from persecution. Things were getting tough economically at that time in the region. The Romans were making things very hard for, for Jews and especially for Christians. So there are some parallels there with the times that we're in now, economic difficulties. And pilgrims at that point were coming to Jerusalem from all sorts of places to, to hear the gospel, but they, but they weren't leaving. They, they had nothing to get, go back to. They were poor as well. And so the church there started putting these people up in their homes and tried to help them out with their needs and support them. Well, after a while, even their funds started running out. They were starting to get poor as well. And that led to Paul going around the Roman Empire as he was preaching the gospel, asking Christians to take up a collection for this church back in Jerusalem. You can see something about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So back in the first letter, right at the end, um, Paul writes right at the beginning of chapter 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so all, you also are to do. On the first day of every week, the Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So he was taking up a collection in, in all the churches for this, particularly for this other church in Jerusalem. Well, when we get to 2 Corinthians 8, he uses a different strategy. He now tries to encourage them to give by holding up the example of another church who was doing really well at this. In fact, a, a province of churches, the churches in Macedonia, uh, which happened to be another poor province. They had been plundered by the Romans by this point, but he holds them up as an example. Uh, included in Macedonia in that province were the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. We can read about them and. Well, Paul writes letters to two of those churches, to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians. But in Acts 16 and 17, you can read about his travels through that area. But all of those churches were very high and had a high place in Paul's affections. And so here he commends them for their commitment to giving, even though they didn't have a lot to give. And it's here that we see a few principles for how we ought to think about giving. And so I'm going to look specifically at the first five verses of, first, of 2 Corinthians 8. Um, but those principles are throughout those sections that I read there already. The first principle is just to reemphasize the fact that giving is an overflow of God's grace. You see that right off the top there. We want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Their, their giving was fueled by God's grace, which then welled up into generosity, as verse 2 says. And then you see it again in those amazing words of verse 9 there in chapter 8, where, where you see the gospel realities ex expressed there again in, in those uh, economic financial terms. For you know the grace of God, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he, sakes he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's an amazing transformation 
a great verse describing the incarnation there, God's, uh, what we call God's condescension coming down from his place of glory to the world. He pictures that as, uh, as becoming poor. And then says he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. What a transaction. But this verse is here to teach us the motivation for giving. Giving is motivated by and springs forth from God's grace toward us. Over in chapter 9, verse 8, you see it again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may then abound in every good work. John MacArthur writes, The grace of God is the primary stimulus to biblical giving. A heartfelt longing and earnest desire to give generously and sacrificially flows out of a transformed heart. Whenever we have times where we wonder whether we should give or give our or, or wonder whether we should serve even or whether wonder whether we should give our time or give our money, we should stop and ponder again the wonder of God's grace and kindness and benevolence toward us. There was nothing that compelled God to make a way for you to be reconciled to him. You understand that? There was nothing that compelled God to do that. We blew it. We walked away from his blessings. We rebelled against him. So whenever you think, you know, maybe there might be times when it comes into your mind, that, you know, that person over there doesn't deserve my kindness. She doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Or you might think the church hasn't met my needs this month, so I'm not sure that I want to give. Well, whenever your mind goes there, stop yourself in your tracks and think about what God did for you. Ponder his grace toward you. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace motivates our giving. A second principle we can learn about goes back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. Here we learn that giving is not circumstantial or situational. It says there, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. This is just a good reminder that for, for Christians, joy can overcome and can stamp out difficult circumstances and even poverty. These folks were under some kind of pressure here. It was a severe test of affliction. That word of affliction is, was used in that culture for crushing grapes. They, they were pressed. They had pressure on them, exerted on them. Spiritually, economically maybe. But that didn't deter, it didn't affect, it didn't diminish their desire to give. In fact, it actually increased their desire to give and it increased the level of their generosity. When I read this, I kind of made me put, down, put it down as sort of a math equation. There's abundance of joy due to divine grace plus extreme poverty, and that equaled then a wealth of generosity. You could almost say that their abundant joy was greater than, it had greater impact than their extreme poverty. 
And that produced for them an, an overflowing, over-the-top wealth of generosity. We have all kinds of things pressing in on us in these days. Our stress levels are high. Uh, our economy is volatile, if not in free fall. Jobs are in jeopardy. Uh, couple that with lots of consumer debt. And, and all those things bring upon us pressure. It, it's a test of affliction. And so the question for us who have been transformed by God's grace is, how will we respond? Let's heed this example of the churches in Macedonia province. It seems like their giving was not hindered in the slightest. And in, in fact, it seems like the increased pressure only served to increase their joy in giving. I imagine that they couldn't give a whole lot. Verse 3 tells us that. But even though their money was drying up, their joy was abundant. Grace conquers circumstances. Joy trumps situations around us. And over in chapter 9, verse 7, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. We ought to give cheerfully and joyfully because we have received grace so abundantly. That's the motivation. That's the foundational stuff underneath that compels us to give. That not only compels us, compel is the wrong word, that helps us to give cheerfully. And the result was that even though they were, uh, that, you know, their situation could be described as one of hardship, one of poverty, one of affliction, their generosity here is described as being wealthy. Their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Generosity was their currency. Their, their possessions were few, but their generosity was great. Christians can be described as generous no matter what circumstances are around us. That's the way they ought to be described. Why? Because God's wealth of generosity has already overflowed, has flowed into us and is now overflowing out of us. So now, having laid that foundation, we start to get into some of the nitty-gritty questions about giving. And one of those questions that comes up, to which we often want an answer, is how much are we supposed to give? Well, I think we have at least part of an answer here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3. It says, for they gave, now it's going to tell us how or what, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. I love verse 4, actually. It says, they're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Imagine that. Please, can we give? You know? It's just, uh, it, it, the only way to explain it is there's a transformed heart. It's supernatural kind of response and attitude. But I think there are two principles there back in verse 3 in those words, they gave according to their means. That tells us that our giving should be proportionate to what someone has. Paul doesn't talk about any kind of percentages here. It sounds like they all might have given a different amount. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, I already read that. Paul instructed them to give as he may prosper. The point is to give something 
But the Bible gives no set amount. That was the principle even in the Old Testament. You might not believe that. You might think there's a different principle in the Old Testament. But back in the Old Testament, it was the same sort of thing. When we looked at those verses in Exodus, 1 Chronicles, it just talked about giving freely and willingly. Again, no amount. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And so when people come and tell me things are tough, but they still want to give and they want to know how much to give, I just tell them to give something. I say, give what you can. And the only principles I say is give regularly and give proportionately. But we can add another part of that equation from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, and that's that we ought to give sacrificially. It says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, though, beyond their means. It was sacrificial giving. But it was willing and it was voluntary. It was of their own accord. They saw giving as a privilege, verse 4 says. And they were so overcome by grace and they were so secure knowing that if God provided them salvation in abundance, he would also provide for their sustenance. They knew that to such a degree that they were willing to give beyond their means. It was sacrificial. But it just follows that if Christ sacrificed for us, we ought to give sacrificially. And that idea of sacrifice brings to mind the fact that giving is an act of worship. Old Testament sacrifices happened in the context of worship. The community at worship offering their gifts to God. Their offering would be described as a fragrant offering that would go up to God. This is why we include offering as part of our worship services. It's our spiritual act of worship where we recognize that God sent His Son to atone for our sins by dying on a cross. And we respond to that act by bringing our own offering to God in worship. It is our sacrifice of praise. So I think we can see here that all Christians should give. That's, that's been established already based on what God has done for us. It is our appropriate but worshipful and joyful and cheerful response. Christians, people who have been redeemed by God, the redeemed people of God, ought to be known for their generosity. And now we see that we should give proportionally. That will look different for everyone. Give according to your means as God has prospered you. But the added principle here is that we should give sacrificially. So we ought to give in a way that it costs us something. Don't give what you don't have, but do give in such a way that you feel it. How might that look for you? Uh, Tim Challies, in one of the articles I had there, um, put out the challenge this way. And, and this challenged me as well. He writes, quote, If you're giving an amount that doesn't really impact you, he gives a couple of examples, you make $10,000 a year and are giving $100, or you make $50,000 a year and are giving $250, or you're making $50 million and are giving $20,000, you're giving is not truly sacrificial for giving like that. Giving is meant to be felt. If you aren't feeling your giving, if you, haven't, if you aren't having to put other plans on hold because of your giving, you're probably not giving enough. goes on to say that there's a special kind of thrill that comes at the end of a year when you look at what you have given that year and you see sacrifice. You can see that you could have had a new computer or a new kitchen or a new car, and yet you've chosen to serve and honor the Lord. 
That is God-honoring sacrifice, end quote. So there's a challenge for all of us. Is our giving sacrificial? Just one note on that. Some of you might have been wondering now about the concept of tithing and why I instead prefer to talk about regular, proportionate, and sacrificial giving. It's mostly because the tithe was an Old Testament principle. It's, it's one of the laws from which we as New Testament believers have been released, Romans 7, verse 6. And on top of that, the tithe was a payment that was required. Hear those words. The tithe was a payment that was required, much like we are required to pay taxes to the government. Old Testament Israel was not a democracy like we have. It was a theocracy. And we could say that it was governed by people called the Levites. And so God required that a percentage was collected in order to provide for the Levites who couldn't provide for themselves because they had no land. There was no land of the 12 tribes that was distributed to them. They were the keepers of the temple, the religious leaders. But even then, like we saw from time to time, God did ask Israel for free will offerings. And so there was a voluntary offering and a required offering. And I would submit that it's the same now. We are required to pay percentages to the government, but when it comes to the church, our offerings are free and willing and according to our means. They're a matter of the heart, a heart of generosity that's informed and that's touched by the gospel of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And so what about the 10%? Well, some people, New Testament believers, would say that that's a starting point. They say that Jesus, and they're right, Jesus never lowered any Old Testament laws. He only heightened them. And that's a fair point. But I would just also say, keeping that in mind, that there is no percentage. The only requirement is that we should give. In light of what God has done for us, which is so large and came at such great cost, we should give abundantly, sacrificially, and generously. And that just leaves one more question. To whom should we direct our offering? And I believe that the answer to that question, based on this passage and based on the entire New Testament, is that our giving should first and foremost be directed to to the church, the local church at which you regularly worship and fellowship. In Acts 2 to 6, as the church in Jerusalem grow, uh, started growing, they had to start meeting each other's needs, as we saw already. And at the end of Acts 2, as they came together, it says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, proceedings to, or the possessions to all, as all had need. It was the same thing at the end of Acts 4. Church had grown a little bit more by this point, only here you now see that it's the, the apostles that were responsible for distributing them to those from the church that were in need. So they laid them at the apostles' feet, and the the apostles then distributed those things that were given, those possessions that were given to share. And by the time we get to Acts 6, the apostles uh, figure out that they need help in the distribution. The needs were starting to be too great, and they wanted to give themselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word, and so they bring a, a number of people along, they're named there, some call them deacons here, and and they ask them to help in the distribution. And so the pattern is 
that they were given to the church, and there were leaders that were responsible to be good stewards of those contributions. There might be needs that require funding in the church. And later, in places like 1 Timothy, we see that Paul instructs the leaders uh, to be supported as well, that they need to be supported. And from places like 2 Corinthians and all the letters in which Paul takes up this collection, we see that the church supported uh, Paul in his missionary trips through the region. So so Paul was supported as he went out, and then he collected this offering as well. So whether it's uh, just caring for people's needs, or whether it's um, buildings or leadership, or whether it's missions, all of that is given to the church and then distributed as seems best. That seems to be the um, general teaching of the New Testament in the early church. But on top of all that, it's clear that the church has a special place in God's grand purposes. Hence, giving should be to the local church first. John Piper, just this week, in answering a question on how to divide one's giving, came at him from someone that wrote to him, said, how do we divide one's giving? Do we give... 5% here and 5% there, or how does that work? And he says this. He says, the church has a unique place in God's plan, and therefore a special claim in the giving of its people. Other kinds of ministry are wonderful, and I want them all to flourish. But the one institution in the world that is clearly rooted in the New Testament and in the gospel is the local church. If that institution fails, all other ministries become ineffective. Indeed, if the church fails, all other ministries become unbiblical. The local church is the seedbed for all ministries. And I would add there that parachurch ministries get in trouble when they separate themselves from the local church. The local church, he says, is the seedbed for all other ministries. He ends by saying, I prefer to put all the emphasis on let's be lavish in our generosity Let's be sacrificial in our giving. Let's be loyal to our local church. And let's be far-seeing in our support for many ministries. So I would submit that the priority for our giving is the local church. Whether this is your church, or if you're visiting, whichever church that you belong to and that ministers to you. Now, what does this mean for us? Now, I thought to myself, I could take some time at this point to outline our particular needs as a church or, or to start parading out statistics on how much um, we need in proportion to how many we have attending. But I really just today thought I would just leave it at the principles and allow you to figure out how that works within the local church, within our local church, if you're part of our church. And so I really just want to end by going back to the gospel as the fuel to challenge you to give in whatever way God has laid on your heart. I don't want to guilt you with all of our financial burdens, which no doubt are very real. But I do want you to be touched by the gospel and to consider your response not to our needs, but based on what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian... I would almost say that you should not give to the church. Why? Because you're likely doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't want you to be confused thinking that you can maybe earn God's favor by doing that. 
I'd rather encourage you to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then you will naturally, supernaturally respond by giving. If you are a believer, I want to leave you with the words of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I want to leave those words ringing in your ears and landing on your heart as you consider how you ought to give. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all the spiritual blessings that you have given us in the heavenlies. We are grateful for what you have done in rescuing us by giving us your Son. And we thank you that Jesus willingly obeyed you and that he willingly and voluntarily offered himself by dying on the cross. I pray that in light of that, in light of those great truths of the gospel, that you would help us to be cheerful and willing and generous people who excel in the act of giving. Giving ourselves, giving our time, giving our service, giving our abilities, giving our finances. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know the truths of the gospel, to, to feel the truths of the gospel, and then to give sacrificially and joyfully. We thank you for your surpassing grace in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.